There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and I'm writing it up as inventive and confident. Joining me is the girl who will never be jello, Jess Pound. I will always be jello. I'm jello. Are <laughs> no, you you're kidding creme me? No, no, no. And it comes creme brulee. Sweet. <laughs> creme brulee could never be jello. No, that's not my tagline. My tagline is Jessica Pan, born to be jello. Born to, I've never had a guest in all like 150 episodes of this podcast dispute the tagline that I have bestowed upon them. And I, I welcome this correction. <laughs> yeah. People have been letting me get away with stuff for too long. And it, not anymore. It stops today. <laughs> it stops today. <sighs> Jess, you're one of my most, um, I would say, formidable <laughs> former guests. Because you came on a few years ago to do um, Sweet Valley High, which is a legendary episode. And, I, and as I mentioned to you before we started uh, taping, uh, the the episode people come up to me to say, like, I'm a real fan of the podcast. I've been listening to since Sweet Valley High with Jess Pan. And I, I listened to that trashy episode. <laughs> yeah. I like real shit. I've, I've listened to the Jess Pan episode. And then I remember you were so good. And I was like, gotta get Jess Pan back on. And uh, I asked you back on. And you were like, listen, I'm having a child. I'm... I think you're probably typing from labor. You're like, probably not for a while. And I was like, fine. And then you started DMing me. So I'm ready to come back on the podcast now. Here's some and suggestions. Then total silence. I was just Ghost. sending I was just sending things like Matchbox 20, no reply three weeks later. Um Saved by the Bell, nothing three weeks later. And I actually it, it hurt at first, but then I started to really enjoy it. Like it felt like we were gonna do it forever. I know. I was looking forward to that too. That it would be our best friends' wedding, best friends' wedding. You know that like you're a person I don't speak to for for months at a time, but then uh, we'll 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 clash together over random suggestions and life events. But then you told me that today's the day. Today's the day. This is one of the most requested sentimental garbage episodes, and uh, again, I, I something sort of just. It's the jewels in me. When when someone wants me to do something, when someone wants me, I don't want them. Um, which is how how how, how Jul- yeah, Julianne like. Yes. It's so Julianne like, and uh, and and also I think I didn't hold off. I held off on it for so long because I like this movie a lot. It's like fucking slides down easy. It's such a fun, lovely subversion of a classic, like tropey genre thing. But also, I feel like. I had avoided it because everybody loves it and therefore it felt like there was no garbage conversation to be had. There was felt like no reclamation to be had because it is so beloved. Uh, and also it felt like there's there's one conversation that happens about this movie and the conversation is 28 is a crazy age to be <laughs> to be worried about whether you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. And I think I didn't consider it for so long because of that. But rewatching it last night, I realized there is there is a lot to this film and it's a very good sort of Rosetta Stone for female damage I think you can really identify your own damage within it well I want to dispute the whole 28's too young because I feel like as a creative decision by the writer Mm -hmm. they had to do that because if it was 35 
she would never be that insane at the wedding because <laughs> because you already have, you like you would have like a, a exhausted all of that emotional bandwidth in your twenties going to your friends' weddings and crying. Oh yeah, and also I know they rush like. I met Kimmy and I'm marrying her on Sunday. <laughs> and it's hard to swallow that. But then, I mean, if they did it for two or three years, she wouldn't have a film. She'd come and she'd hate Kimmy, but it would just be this long, drawn out thing. Like you had to have I'm getting married Sunday and we're 28 because honest, I mean, I'm over 35 and I just I would probably be over it. That's a, I'd never considered that before. And you're right. I do hate when people are like they um they dispute the very problem that makes the film a film it's like people talk about juno it's like well that character would naturally get an abortion because she's you know a left leaning teenager it's like yes but then there would be no film <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah there would be but you're dead right that's such an interesting thing of like you would be all out of like by the time you're in your mid 30s and it becomes like um not marriage, but sort of certainly meeting someone if you want to have a family, blah, 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 that, that those problems loom larger in the psyche. Whereas when you're in your late 20s, it's more about feeling left out or left behind, which are vaguer prospects and easier to get over. But when you're 28 and people are starting to get married, and if you get like a high achieving, you know, person like this, you can see how it would drive them insane. Exactly. And I also just think you wouldn't, you just, you'd cry more at 28. You'd be more emotional. I know you're a full adult then, but then... I just think as you get older, the more weddings you go to, it just feels like less intense. So we mm. need her to be at like the pinnacle of, oh, my God, this is happening. I'm losing my best friend forever. Because yeah. I, I went through that at 27. And I don't think I, I don't think I'd go through that now if my best friend got married now, even if I was single. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I just got married. And <laughs> hold for applause. <laughs> Congratulations. Hold for applause. So, no, it's, it's, oh, my God, I just looked at the... Um, of the day it's my two month anniversary oh well done I wonder what's the two months <laughs> tin branch my best friend's wedding viewing yeah that's it that's what yeah that's what two month anniversary is um, and I and um, I'm 33 and you know so most of my friends are in their 30s and I and I remember a few friends saying to me that like this is so much nicer than the weddings that we went to five or six years ago because no one's as a as like in crisis about their life choices. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that is why I will defend the decision to make them have the pact at 28 because otherwise there they would there would be no film. We'd be talking about Hanson. <laughs> or Matchbox 20, which was a close contender given the Barbie movie and they're having a kind of an, a moment again. Um but so, you know, obviously there are many things that you could have picked as your sentimental garbage and there there were many nominees. But uh, what what um, what is it about? You've already made a great argument for this movie up top, even existing. But what's its argument for it being like Jess Pan's sentimental garbage? Okay, are you ready? Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. Born ready. Uh, um. So the film came out summer nineteen ninety seven. Mm-hmm. I saw it in theaters with my family. I was twelve, which, as we know, preteen, mm. the most influential age when like culture is thrown on you. I remember when, first of all, I thought it was obviously very funny, very different. Like when she says, George just came here to, uh, to, uh, fuck me. Like I just thought that was so funny. <laughs> the delivery of that line remains so delicious and so unexpected. And her little, like, her little chicken run face just being to fuck me. <laughs> it's just so good. So good. And I, even at 12, I was just like, that is genius. And I just, but as a 12 year old, I'd only seen, or maybe all of us had only seen like romantic comedies where they always get together, no matter what, no matter how mm-hmm. crazy things happen. And 
even when it seemed like, oh, no, this might not happen for her. I still believed. I still believed. Even when they got married, I was like, no, 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 he's going to run back. Because as the credits rolled, I was honestly, I was completely shocked. And I was like, this is illegal. I didn't know you could write a romantic comedy where she doesn't get who she wants or he doesn't get who he wants. Like, I just didn't know that was possible. And that has always stuck out as me as like this major, major mm. cultural moment for me. Completely. And like, was it, did it, I think also seeing it at that age, it, it presents a really beautiful look at like what grown-up life can be, even though she's a crazy character and like very much like a precursor to a lot of tropes that now feel tropey but then weren't. Like she's got a real flea bag energy to her. This exactly. kind of yeah. like um sort of smoking, sort of very negative, very cynical, holds herself away from situations and like sort of we never really find out why it is that Julianne doesn't connect with people on that level, but we're given enough clues as to why throughout of being like I'll get to it when I get to it in the, in the thing, but like someone who just can't give themselves over to a moment or over to anyone and therefore spends a lot of their life with this Janice face, like looking back. I meant Janice, like, like the the god of January, right? Now, Janice from Friends, which I realize now sounds like I thought like you meant Janice from Mean Girls, which makes <gasps> oh, sense. Oh, also that. Yeah. Oh, wow. That does make sense. Love it. Um, um, love what I just said. Lo- I love what I say. <laughs> Um, but it also presents this life of like these jobs that are no longer jobs, such as full-time restaurant critic at 27 and, you know, uh, sort of sports journalist guy or whatever. And it just like, it is a very glamorous film in terms of what your life could look like at 28. But also when you watch it when you're 12, you take everything so literally. So you Mm. think... I cannot be single at 28. And Mm. so I made a pact with someone when I was 13, a boy in my middle school who had seen the film that we were going to get married. And even we were more reasonable. We were like at 30, though. At 30, though. (laughs) That makes more sense. And we never dated. It was this platonic friend thing. But he would like write me notes, of course, on his desk. And he would write them like to my future wife. Oh I know, my God. I know, I know. It's 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 sad, but um, that's so sweet. But then, and he would like. I think his nickname for me was Skillet because my last name is Pan. But we we're just oh, that's cute. It was it was cute. That's we were, nice. I like it. We were just friends though, and then that was when we we're thirteen in middle school. So then the next year we went to high school, which is when all the middle schools sort of joined together, and he met Tiffany, a volleyball player who was like five ten and. They are married and have two kids. And they got married at 22. He left me behind. Oh, my God. So even though I took out, like, an insurance policy, I was still got... I would have been screwed over. And did you go to that wedding? I wasn't invited. Isn't that what? weird? I know. She's threatened. She's still threatened. <laughs> She's a volleyball player. She can handle herself really well. <laughs> Spike a ball into your face and knock you into last week. I didn't know you needed like a tiered like contingency plan in case they get married to someone else and you're left like you have to have sort of anyway. I I remember this like I think this happened in my circles as well where people saw this movie and were shoring up a lot of insurance plans in (laughs) their like (laughs) mid-teens. Yes. It's insane. But I loved it. Um, And I would say the second other than like being betrothed to someone at 13 
who we never touched or kissed until uh-huh. we were 30 was the plan, which felt normal in Texas. Uh-huh. Um, I was like, that makes total sense. We uh, The other thing that this movie did to me, which I find so much more disturbing, is that, I think I told you this, I went to Brown. Why did I go to Brown? Was it because of the open curriculum? Was it because of the psychology program? Or was it because Julianne and Michael met there? Oh. God. I know you're looking at me with such sadness. Don't no, look I, at me like that. No, Caroline, I think stop. it's so it's an nice. Ivy League. Stop. It's an Ivy League. But I, my reference for Brown University, that Simpsons episode where uh, where Elisa's like, you know, I won't get into any of the top Ivy universities. <laughs> I'll have to go to Brown, not That's, Brown, <laughs> Brown. Lisa, you're saying Brown a lot. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I have. Or do you remember in Gilmore Girls, they were like, and that dumb cousin couldn't even get into Brown. It's a it's a thing. Like, it's, yeah. it's insane how much the world at large absorbs about the American Ivy League system without ever having bouncing off of it at all. I've like long been of the opinion that Brown is for some reason the shittest of the no, Ivy League. No, it's leagues. not. It's Cornell. No, Cornell also gets like in it. I don't. Why did I apply to Brown? Like, I knew I would never get into Harvard. Yeah, I mean, it was it's easier, but it's still really hard. But I just felt like I'm sure on some subconscious level, I just thought, well, that's where I'm going to meet my Michael, who I will marry, not taking any lessons of the film. Um, and I went to Brown, waited on my sophomore year at Brown for my hot month with a Michael. Uh-huh. Didn't happen. Lots of men did look like Michael there, but they were like usually interested in other men <laughs> or like played a lot of lacrosse and mm-hmm. it just didn't happen for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> But this remains a, a wonderful movie with which to dream through. <laughs> and, and she and I have the same T-shirt, and I think that's important, which I thought would really annoy you because I listened to your episode where you talk about how you don't want people to get trinkets. <laughs> I know. It's very humorless of me. <laughs> it made me a little scared why. of you. I know. Do you know what? Recently, I went to... Um, uh, when I was in Australia two days ago, I've like literally just gone back. I've, I've, I'm still a little bit jet lagged. So if I have some odd turns of phrases or just suddenly fall asleep during the middle of this conversation, that's why. Um, but uh, I went to the Australian sort of hall of music and I saw um, uh, Kylie Minogue's T-shirt that she wore in the Come Into My World video. And it felt important. So I <laughs> maybe I slightly renege on my memorabilia uh, discussion from previous episodes. But back to this... Um, I think something in me that rejected this movie for a while, and this movie, it actually in a way reminds me of The Parent Trap, because it's a movie where the concept is so outrageous that you just have to either buy it or get out of the theater. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to sit there and just pick it apart or whatever, and, and, um, that like, for example, why people would separate their twins and then live on separate sides of the world and then never tell each other about it, but all their staff know. <laughs> um, like, if, you, if you're gonna if you're going to sit there and hold the movie to account for that, you're just not going to have a good time. And I think... I, for a long time, the thing that, like, it wasn't even the, the fact that they had this pact to begin with that held this movie away from me. It's um, the fact that I just never believed they were best friends. And it... <laughs> what? Do you believe they're best friends? Is that how you fuck around with your best friends? Just, like, don't talk to them for months, and then it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in a bra, and it's like, oh, I've seen that before, kind of thing. Like, just these two people who meet up to flirt every six months. <laughs> no, but then, remember when they're like, remember that time when we went to Florence in the Vespa, and they have, like, all these memories, and yes. the Wild Night in Tucson? Like, that's what they used to be. No, that is, I mean, I think you're right. At this point, they're not best friends, but they definitely were. Otherwise, that, that's why she's so emotionally like, yeah. can't let him go. And it's kind of, it's sort of a movie 
Because I think what's, what I love about it as well is that it doesn't... The movie doesn't actually take Jules's love of him that seriously. Like, the movie sort of knows and is winking at you that, like, she's... This is not what real love looks like. This is, like, mm. obsession, insecurity, and jealousy. And it's also a deep fear of losing your youth, I think, is, is what actually that love symbolises. It's like, yeah, if we... If, well, I have to say goodbye to those, that youthful thing of like you looking at me like I'm this goddess, that that brilliant line by Cameron Diaz. He's got you in a pedestal and me in his arms. <laughs> I have to let go of that like picture of myself that only you see and is this like amber, you know, version of me. This Sorry, what's the phrase? Locked in amber version of me that will always be perfect and always be young. And if we both move on and become grownups and, and get married, then that version just goes away, you know? Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that is powerful, actually. I think re-watching it this weekend, I felt... It hit me a lot more, that part of it. Like, I love the scene on the boat, the ferry, when he talks about how, like, you've always been the woman in my life and that's going to change. Like, it really... I felt yeah. That moment felt very real and she seems the most real in that moment where she's... You can clearly see she's upset and it like made me want to cry. Like it did make me sad. Like that is a moment that everybody has when not. And I'm not even talking about like someone you're romantically interested in. Like you're when your best friend does get married. It's just is this thing? Is this a big deal? Yeah. yeah. And uh, did you have that? When did you get married? Twenty-seven. <laughs> because wow. of the film, obviously. The psyche is real. <laughs> No, but that's because the UK government was like, if you don't, you know, you can't stay here unless you marry one of us. So I just found one of you. No, that's not true. I came here for him. But yes, we got married at 27 because we couldn't legally live in the same country unless we did. So that's normal. We're still together, though. So it's own rom-com. Yeah. I believe it's called Green Card with Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu. I haven't seen that. I need to see that. Yeah, it's nice. Well, you've lived it. You don't need to. You're right. And when you got married, did you have a sense of sort of existentialism where when it came to yes marriage is opening a door on you know children and the future and grandkids and being a unit and being a family but it's also it's closing a door on something else which is a sense that you're still about to meet the person who understands you the most in the world you know a hundred million percent yeah yeah I thought the wedding was fun and then when everyone left in the morning it was like at a hotel like I said goodbye to my parents, I said goodbye to my best friends, and we were just left together. There was definitely something bittersweet about this. Definitely. Yeah, you're never going to like have a have a weird evening with a guy you meet in Paris who doesn't exist, who drags you on the back of his moped and takes you somewhere weird, you know? That's it, never going to happen. <laughs> it could happen. I'm going to Paris next week. It could happen. Um, yeah, but, but the, the idea that like the, it could happen, you're at Caroline. the end of your Vespa, Vespa stranger days, you know? I, but I also felt it more with my best friends who were women. Mm. Like, like, actually, I think I handled the, my wedding. It was less emotional in that sense. Because the year before, my real best friend, Jory, my like childhood best friend, my everything best friend, who is a woman, and we were platonic, Mm. got married the year before. And I remember her mom said to her, you know, when you get married, Henry, her like future husband, Mm. is going to be your person, not Jessica anymore. Like her mom said that to her. And then she said that to me. And I was just like, what do you mean? That's not that's not fucking true. Because you feel that way. You know that, that meme of like yeah. the, the bridesmaid watching like the wife say, I'm marrying my best friend. And they're just like, no, you're fucking not. <laughs> I felt like that. I was like, no, that's not true. And then I, but I did start feeling emotional about it. And, but I, there was this time, there's this moment before the wedding 
where her bachelorette party was going to be like in Santa Fe and we're from Texas. Mm. And we were going to drive there, like all of her like wedding party, the, the women. And she promised me that we were going to drive together in a car alone because I was living in Australia at the time. So we didn't okay. see each other that much. And I'd flown over for her wedding. I was the maid of honor, ousting her sisters, which felt great. So I still felt like, oh, I'm like, I'm still her person. And we were, we were going to like plan this road trip, just us, meet everyone else there. We were going to like talk and like play music and eat gas station snacks and like drink giant iced teas and like everything. And the movie of that road trip had already played out in your head and you just couldn't wait to, to step into it, right? I could not yeah. wait. Like when we were best friends at, in high school, we were always in the car. We were always blasting music and talking and talking and talking. And, and then she called me a week before and said, oh, like three other bridesmaids who like I've never met have to be in the car with us. And oh. I sobbed like hysterically on the phone or after you got off the phone i was like no no please no like no like can't they run please, a car no <laughs> no please no yeah oh my god caroline you made me cry i'm so no, tired no i no I, I so get that i so understand i i, I you know i really hold you in that moment and i really understand it <laughs> it was i became hysterical uh, not on the call probably on the call like, you know, the Jules thing where you're crying, but you're not showing you're crying on the call. Yeah. And then afterwards, like, sobbed, being like, but that was going to be our, like, we were going to be safe. If we could do that one thing before you got married. Oh. And instead, we had to, like, ride with these three girls that she, like, barely knew because she had to fill her wedding party. And I was very Jules-like in that fucking hated them. Like, nice girls, I'm sure. But I was very resentful. Very much took the front seat without asking. And it was very much understood that no one else would have it because, you know. Oh. Because it was, I just felt like, I felt more like it was, it was resentment towards them and not the husband, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make me look good, just like the film doesn't no, make Jules No, look good. I know, but like, I think the best, like all genre films, whether it's horror or romance or action or gangster movies or whatever, they sort of, they present situations we will never be in to give us a lexicon of situations that we often are in. You know, they're dramatic versions of things that happen in our emotional lives all the time. And the, and what the truth that this movie gets to is that like, there are many, many people affected by weddings who are not the people getting married. <laughs> and they do start this sort of like psychological domino effect of like, you know, and, and, and one of those huge dominoes that often falls is like, but what happens to me now? Mm-hmm. Like I get left behind, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or not. That's a huge thing that happens because it's a it's a departure. You know, it's why so many um old kind of mar- uh, movies that have weddings in them it kind of ends with the the couple leaving kind of thing and they like here we are now off into our lives we've got in- into the car with the tin cans behind them rattle 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 you know and um, and like I think Father of the Bride is another great movie that does that as mm-hmm. well and another great movie that does that which has lots of common DNA with this movie is Muriel's Wedding same director same director and um, there's just so many just crossovers between it Um that the fact that yes, it's about it's it's a wedding that's not about romance. It's about what a wedding can do for you and what it does to other people, mm-hmm. um, and also that it, these are musicals that aren't musicals. Yeah, like, very much so. Yeah. You feel like you're entering a, a play when you go in. Everyone's in costume. Yeah, there is music playing. There's drama. There's new people meeting. I definitely feel that. And I, so I went through that the year before. Yeah, and then I got married. And I, well, she got married. I caught the bouquet. Of course I did. There's this insane... I refused to do that at my wedding. I was like, no. (laughs) I was 26 at her wedding. Okay. So there's this photo of me. You can see my calves flexing up and grabbing it because I'm so resentful of the other women who like been in the car with us, which I know is terrible and I'm sure they're nice now, but she's never even seen them since. But um, You were 26. I was 26. It's fine. Um, 
and and I did get married the next year, but not because you have to get married when you when the UK because the UK government made me. <laughs> okay, you keep saying that. <laughs> um, let's let's like start at the at the beginning with this movie because I know this is such a precious one for people, and I don't want them to feel like their favorite bits have been skipped over. So we open on a kitchen, and it's so weird. No, we don't. No way. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. We open on three women that we never see again. (laughs) Singing. Singing. What's it? Wishing and hoping. Wishing and hoping. (laughs) A lot of words that don't have their G's on them. And uh, yeah, they're just like these. Yeah, I think it's three bridesmaids and a bride. Um, in this like beautiful, like what feels like a real setup for a, like a 60s kind of a classic rom-com kind of thing where it might end in a double wedding, you know, like it's <coughs> it's that kind of Rodgers and Hammerstein sort of feel to it. And you know what I meant a minute ago with the, this is a movie that's a, uh, like it's a stealth musical, you know, there are many musical numbers in this movie and many moments where the the emotions are being underscored by like 60s sort of pop songs about romance which is just like Mm. one of the most artful things about one of the many things I respect on a craft level about this film is the way it uses music Mm -hmm. very much so and um I think as well, like as somebody who like write, who's doing writing a lot of screenplays at the moment, and none of them will get made for many years, and I'm and I find my peace with that. It's it's such a temptation because every the, the, the rom coms that everybody loves are like you know your Harry Met Sally's or whatever, and they're so dependent on sparkling dialogue, and it's what everybody remembers about them. But you actually can't have great rom coms without a lot of physicality and set pieces to break up sparkling dialogue because people get sick of sparkling dialogue. You know what I mean? Mm. You need these moments like the um, say a little prayer for you moment or the um, the moment where even all the guys are doing helium balloons and singing. You know, you need these Karaoke. Moments. Karaoke. Like it's, it's a musical. You know, there are like it probably has as many musical moments as Grease does. Yeah. You know? yeah. I completely agree. It is. And then we get, sorry, then we get to the restaurant where, and it's such a strange setup and again, feels a bit like a Disney movie or something. Like a, like. Ratatouille. Like a, yeah, it does. <laughs> Cause it's like all heavily scored. Like, oh, we're in a kitchen and there, there's, we're making this like complicated, like a steak tartare type of thing. And it gets rushed out to um, Julie Roberts' character, Julian. And she's there sitting with her, what I think is her real best friend, which I think, you know, is is, is revealed throughout the movie, George, who's played by a wonderful Rupert Everett. And uh, it, it completely, it's it missells a, a very strange idea of what being a food critic is, which is that the whole point is nobody knows you're coming. Yeah, but it is a really good moment to just capture that she inspires fear in people. I yeah. love that. Like, you really get like, okay, people are afraid of her. This woman has authority and isn't scared. Yeah. It is good for that. And it's like, we never really, apart from the jello and creme brulee comment, we never really hear her in- engage with food again. <laughs> she does when she's talking to Kimmy and trying to, like, convince her that Michael's honeymoon will be really bad. And she's like, really bad food. <laughs> Which would convince me. That would convince me. Yeah. Um. So she she gets a voicemail from... Her best friend, who's what's the name again? Michael. Sorry, you just said his name. Uh, oh my god! It's because you came back from Australia. It's fine. It's fine. We forgive me. 
Um, and uh, explains to George that this is her best friend, that they haven't spoken in a while. He's a sports journalist that is always touring the country. She's been on book tour for a book we hear nothing more about. And uh, he desperately wants to speak to her. And that's, you know, it's it's that great rush of expedition we always get at the beginning of rom-coms of being like, he and I, you know, we, we have this hot time in college and then we realized that we weren't meant to be together we meant to be best friends and we've been best friends ever since and then we made this pact that by the time we were 28 blah blah blah, we all know it kind of thing and then it's kind of this lovely wrong footing of like well i'm turning 20 you're turning 28 very soon we all know what this conversation is and like what a different movie that would be if it was like we've never really had a romantic relationship in the last 15 years (laughs) now let's get married (laughs) what do you say babe what did you expect Michael to say? Did you? Well, I guess you already knew. I think actually my point of what I was thinking about when I was rewatching this is that when you I remember watching the trailer for that film before it came out uh-huh. and it's very different. There's so many scenes or lines in there that are not in the film and it has voiceover in it, I guess, to guide us. Uh-huh. And she says like ridiculous things on the film with him, like oh, I'm having like. I'm having a sex change. I can't get married. Like all this weird stuff. It's just all yeah. these weird bits. And I think it just was interesting to me that I didn't know you could also do that back then. That you could like put these things in the trailer and convince people it was going to be in it. And it's not. And also, the trailer is actually terrible. Really? The film what, is so much better. What does the what does the trailer sell it as? Is it like a different proposition almost? It just isn't very funny and it doesn't feel fun. And it just, yeah, it doesn't, it just doesn't do it justice at all. Oh, interesting. They didn't, yeah, didn't know what they had. Um... And she gets this sort of rude awakening where she finds out that he's engaged to a 20-year-old heiress. and the... That's a hard thing to swallow. I get, yeah, that's the hardest bit that doesn't mm-hmm. make that much sense to me. Okay, go on. Well, just that she's so young. And why does she, I guess, I guess I should be young to feel like, feel like a threat to her. Do you think that's why? Yes, I think it's, so her initial reaction to him getting married, well, at what point does she like, really decide that, like, this is not on my watch kind of thing. What do you mean by not on my watch? As like, in, like, I will I will not let this marriage happen. I mean, the next scene is her in the car yeah. with um, George, like, chain smoking, being like, I've got to break up this wedding. Okay, yeah. So it's... it's I love it because it's such a, like, I will win. It's, it's competition. Yeah. It's bon- it is the Scarface of rom-coms. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, the story of a driven and terrible individual who will stop at nothing to get everything they need. But look how good her hair was. So good. She was she's so, so beautiful. sexy. She's so beautiful in that film. Like, I think she's the most beautiful in that film than any other one. I watched with my husband and he was never, he's never been a Julia Roberts fan, which is also like, how did I marry him? Um, because of the visa. And, <laughs> but after this film, I asked, do you like her more now? Like, do you not think that she like, pulled this off and she was really beautiful and, and and like very charismatic and he did agree that yes he did like her more after this film well yeah the the the, the sort of strap line of this movie could almost be like how much do you like julia roberts <laughs> <laughs> or like how good is julia roberts and that she can sell us on this like incredible series of like anti-hero and the, it's really rare to get a true anti-hero in rom-coms you know because it's it's a movie that it's a genre of movies that I think has f- slowly lost potency over the years, partially because the people who make and distribute them don't understand what they have or what they're going for. I think the people who like write write and direct them do, but it's like the, stu- like the studios seem to have this attitude where it's like, no, they have to be, these women have to be more likable or the way that we show flaws is by showing them be clumsy or have them be overly attached to their cat as opposed to like 
Their flaws being that they're, um, you know, selfish, overly nostalgic, toxic, you know, just um, narcissistic. You know what I mean? Like real, real flaws that people are prepared to witness within themselves, even if it's uncomfortable because it's coming through the beautiful face of Julia Roberts. I think she pulls it off so well. And I also just when I was watching it, every time I watch it, I'm just like enamored by her her toxic character because the other well, some rom-coms they're just so bland because they're so mm. scared of making them unlikable like they like babies they like puppies they bake they volunteer at charity homes and like it's just like i really love that she is allowed to be that way yeah and it's like how how do you feel about uh i mean you've listened to the episode so uh the the film runaway bride as part of the julia roberts oeuvre i didn't like it really well most people didn't so that's fine i think i it's not a rewatch for me i don't think yeah. i've ever rewatched it because it made me f- i didn't love it and i what i did i listened to that episode yesterday actually and i cannot believe that you and dolly figured out the best ending that they run away together that is the ending like you guys rewrote that is the brilliant ending and i would rewatch it if that had been the ending yeah that, that movie when i think of that movie i just think of like eggs <laughs> That's all I think about. It is an advertisement for eggs, isn't it? It's a great PR campaign for eggs, Benedict. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's all I remember is eggs and, like, her on a horse. That is it. Yeah, and that U2 song. Um, I didn't yeah. remember that. that. That really hurt you, not not me. It did you seem so upset by that. I don't know why, because I actually, I really like U2, and I'd love to do an episode on them one day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that the Maggie Carpenter character in One Way Bride is an interesting sort of flip side to this character to Jules which is that like somebody who knows they're adorable and knows that like people it it finds it very easy to make people fall in love with them but is sort of missing this very key thing that actually makes for long-term love and long-term not just romance but real intimacy which is vulnerability and which is why I think the and I'm skipping ahead a few scenes now, but the karaoke scene to me is like one of the most incredible scenes in rom-com history. Because it's one of the few karaoke scenes in all of film that understands the social function of karaoke, which is to put your heart on the fucking line for strangers to stamp on. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's for, it's not for people with good voices. It's for people to be like, this is my favourite song and I fantasise about singing in front of people as a famous person and we're all going to engage <laughs> in that fantasy for me for five minutes. And the idea that like, the way this character of Cameron Diaz plays, she becomes not just a 20-year-old heiress who's sort of like bubbly and sweet, but a person who you could really be in love with because she's able to just give her heart over to situations and moments and not care that she looks dumb. And, and like it makes you love her more. And that's such a rare thing that's explored in, in rom-coms, I think, or in any movies. Yeah, that was another moment when I was watching it as a 12-year-old thinking, are they allowed to do this? It sounds yeah. really bad. And I love at the end when you know, Michael's clapping and he's like, that was terrible. That was terrible. Like, I love that because it felt very real. He was so in love with her for doing that, but he was being honest. Like, I did, I love that moment. I love it. And it's, it's you know, that, that moment where like, Jules is just sort of like clapping, going, all right, fair enough. And like, up until then, she's been sort of, you know, she's planned this whole evening, like very 
demonically, you know, and she's been like, it's very hard to watch, actually, particularly the moments where she's purposefully like leaving Kimmy out of conversations and kind of shouldering her out and being a real cunt. And not just like a scheming uh, heroine, but an an asshole. And uh, then just it's kind it's this lovely moment of her realizing that she's lost and the ways or for that she's lost this round but she isn't prepared to win the whole fight to, to lose the whole fight rather that like oh this person has something that I don't have and it's not just money and it's not just youth it's like this sparkle the sparkle yeah it's exactly like, like naive sparkle yeah yeah which I don't think I ever had but that's fine <laughs> <laughs> so we skipped over a little bit which is her first meeting of Kimmy and uh, her her being appointed the maid of honour Which I now think is like, I think Kimmy's a fascinating character because I think she knows exactly what's going on the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's revealed really well, like in that elevator scene where she stops it of like, oh, she's somebody who's like, and this is very rich people. This is like, this is what rich people, very, very rich people are like. It's like, they really do keep their enemies closer. And because like rich people, very, very wealthy people travel in circles that are so Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So small that they inevitably have to be with people they hate all the time because of that. Because the one percent is literally that. It's like it's it's the one percent. It's tiny. And I've never thought of it that way, but yeah. that is brilliant. Yes, that's what they're like. And they're like, yeah, so it's like I'm just going to promote someone high enough that they like they're they have to see my humanity, and also they're going to be intertwined within my business so that they are just almost like pinned to me and they're almost too close to stab me. They mm-hmm. can't even get the air to, to <laughs> hold the knife up, you know? And uh, I love that. Yeah. I think Kimmy is an interesting character. It's, um, yeah. And I love the ventral sluts, obviously. I like the fun of it. I love that the film is fun. I feel like in a lot of romantic comedies. Yeah. Not the amazing ones, but so many of them, It's there's so many scenes where you're like, I don't want to watch this. This is really boring. But for me personally, I felt like there isn't a scene like that in this film. What did you feel? No, it's it's totally, it's like, I remember hearing this quote. I can't remember what director it was, but it was like, the secret to making a great movie is five good scenes and no bad ones. <laughs> no, five great scenes and no bad ones. And what he meant by that was like, you need basically five snow globes of like, oh, we all remember the karaoke bit. We all remember the weird uh, Southern twins or whatever. And we all remember the, the um, musical bit. The musical the, bit the, or whatever. Yeah. There's really like, and you, you don't need to like have an amazing plot or an amazing whatever as long as you have five great scenes and no bad ones and this is truly a movie of no bad ones it's like it just rollicks along and it just knits together perfectly and you're like oh wow this scene follows it like this is like every single moment feels like a snow globe moment Mm -hmm. and that's why it's I just love it so much yeah it's lovely how old were you when you first watched this film 
good question. Um, probably early, so it came out in 97. I was seven. So um, I remember my sister being crazy about it. And uh, she might have even had a poster of it. And I think I saw it on rental then when I was probably about 11. And again, yeah, took it at face value and didn't understand most of it. And it's only really in the last few years where I have a lot of friends who it's their favourite movie. And, and um, you know, probably not coincidentally, a lot of those friends are also long-term single friends. And I think, yeah, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly fun and very lovable and just really easy to watch movie especially if it's like a great hangover watch or whatever but I also think it's sort of it is it, it, again it it ends with the girl not getting the guy but it also ends with this incredibly hopeful and wry and lovely view of being single generally and it presents a world where the most pe- important people in your life aren't the people you're sleeping with it's like it's your friends you know and like it's like oh I lost my friend I, I, he shouldn't, hasn't lost Michael but you know she, that part of their relationship is ending but then she remembers she has his other friends and there's other people and more things and more life and it feels like very in love with life by mm-hmm. the end it feels hopeful in a way that doesn't almost it's a refreshing surprise for such a cynical movie you know I find it so interesting how um, and I'm sure you've read about this like how there was a different ending. Yes. So they nailed the ending that's in the film, but how do you want to talk about what that is? So the original ending of this movie was John Corbett, <laughs> i.e. Aiden from Sex and the City. I didn't um, know he was even a thing back then. Was he a thing? He I like- think he'd be a barely a thing. 1987. Yeah, no, he was so many years away from being a thing. I don't know. Um, and so he, so that she is like, she lets the the wedding happen and all that. She gives that crazy speech, <laughs> which is like the most self obsessed maid of honor speech of like, you know, you guys don't have a song, but you can borrow ours, which is see, such a freaky thing to say. That's how um, my husband saw it, but I don't see it that way. Okay, I see it more as literally passing the torch. This is not mine anymore. This yes. is yours. Like. I mean, it is a bit annoying for Kimmy, obviously, if she's like, so that's our song. <laughs> but yeah. like at our wedding. Cool. But um, <laughs> that you ruined. But I just I think it's I think it is supposed to be a genuine, like kind thing, like passing the torch. Right. I yeah, it doesn't totally land that way for me. I remember my <laughs> my eldest brother. He had a couple of gir- a girlfriends in succession in um in his teens. And I remember his song with all of them was Baby When You're Gone by Mel C and Brian Adams, just because he loved listening to that song. <laughs> brutal <sighs> what does he think of this film I don't know he I identifies with her yeah he identifies <laughs> with her um, so anyway the, the other ending was that so she is sitting alone and she sort of um, is introduced to this John Corbett character as another wedding guest and that she has this sort of dance with him and that was it and the and, and so we would end on this thing of like oh, okay she doesn't get the guy but she gets a guy and he's sexy so fine um, and, <laughs> and everyone hated it and, and the test audiences fucking hated I it I love that they hated it I just think yeah. that really like restores my faith in, in some humanity yeah and test audiences right because there's so many stories of like 
you know, iconic films that were going to be changed. And then a auteur stepped in and said, no, not on my watch. I'm not going to like hand my piece of art over to a group vote. But this is one of those situations where the group vote truly helped. Yeah, definitely. It was, I really think if it had ended the other way, it would just not be pretty forgettable. Yeah, no, it definitely wouldn't be in the canon. I think it is is so, the fact that it it, it does end with her in Rupert Everett's arms and that that beautiful line of like there may not be marriage there may not be sex but there will be dancing <laughs> is so beautiful and the most emotional part of the movie i think yeah very good yeah. i enjoyed it um i just can't believe it's going to be aiden like like aiden like why is it always aiden Can, is there anyone else always. like why does it have to be him I, I like how it continues aiden's sort of trajectory <laughs> as like the, the almost guy the second place it's like even in even in the history of this movie, he's the edited out person, you know? He, like, John Corbett, a pre-Aiden John Corbett, thought he was going to get his big film debut <laughs> in this oh, no. huge... He was going to end a Julia Roberts movie as the guy she walks off into the sunset with. Can you imagine getting that phone call as John Corbett? <laughs> and then having we your whole family you. go to see it. No, yeah. maybe you wouldn't even get it. Maybe you'd take yeah. your whole family and watch it and they'd be like, where, yeah, where, where are, are you, John? Are you Are you the gay guy? <laughs> Is that, did you put on a British accent? You nailed that. You nailed it. Um, what do you think about, <sighs> we've skipped over the um, the third act of this movie. And what I love about this is like, third acts is generally where rom-coms fail. It's like, I always, even the rom-coms that I love, it's like the bit of the movie where no one's talking to her. It's always like, <laughs> she's gone too far. And now she must um, like, you know, either throw out all her, uh, bottles of vodka and clean her flat and, you know, go to the gym twice and see some friends and, like, wear a ponytail. And then we realise she's changed. And then and then we come back and she has her sort of, like, Phoenix from the Ashes moment. That's the normal rom-com third act. But what instead happens in My Best Friend's Wedding is this ever-escalating set of hijinks that, like, begin as sort of mischievous and deceitful and then become, like, so sociopathic. Like, like so it begins with, like... And what I find interesting as well is, like, there's a, there's a, there's a version of this movie where... And the ending is perfect and, like, I, I would not change it. But i also interested in the movie where... She kind of becomes Kimmy's best friend because she is the only person giving Kimmy good advice. Like, <laughs> you shouldn't quit school. Like, the fact that, like, you're planning on traveling around with this guy you barely know who's almost 10 years older than you. And also, his career is not on an upward trajectory. It's going to be a shitty life of you going around, like, horrible Marriott hotels, like, waiting for him to sort of report on the Cub Scouts while, like, your incredibly wealthy family is like somewhere else do you know what I mean like and uh I love that idea of it that she's like her secret best friend in an enemy form yeah she is I have not thought of it that way that is brilliant yes she is giving good advice while trying to steal her groom totally totally no I want that for me she's the only one looking out for Kimmy everybody else is like so absorbed in the sort of the wedding story in the Mm -hmm. wedding fairy tale that they're not thinking of what's best for Kimmy and what's best for Kimmy is that she finishes her architecture degree (laughs) that bit made no sense like why couldn't they wait for the movie I know but that still was a bit like why how did they meet like why did what's going on oh at the Red Sox so her father owns the White Sox and they have this like moment in the the owner's box which is just like such an insane like no one's commenting on how insane it is (laughs) this is this is the situation but like 
Julia's uh, uh, Jules is sort of doing the kind of oh, you know, everyone loves me. Your dad Frenches me on the mouth. Your brother thinks I'm amazing. Everyone loves... It's like, bleh, the her and the beers. I find it so difficult to watch that bit. What, the bit where she goes, I've got moves you've never seen. And then everyone cheers. It's so weird. I'm sure that even inside, she also hated herself for doing that, though. There's no way that that character was not like, I hate myself for this. Yeah, it's a but real pick-me moment. Yeah, and it does like show off her midriff. So, oh yeah, you know, there's a lot of midriff in this film. Like, oh yeah, a lot like of when great pairs of jeans on that woman, and so many pantsuits. Love it, love it, love it, and tiny little circular sunglasses of which have only looked good on her. Oh god, yeah, I would never get those. No, um, but then we get these sort of like escalating hijinks that start from like, hmm, I'm gonna just lightly manipulate the bride. Oh, that isn't working because she loves him so much, and then she's like, okay, I'm going to. Say to you, well, wouldn't you prefer if, you know, he worked with your dad or whatever and then sort of lightly pushes that and then that doesn't quite work. And so then she just completely pushes that over the edge of breaking into her father's office, which she just like, she's met this man once. She calls into his office and says, can I use your computer? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, he thinks she's just writing up like, oh, the the entree was spicy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they write. Spicy. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and sends an email to Michael's editor uh, saying, uh, pretending to be the dad, saying, like, oh, listen, you know, can you, my daughter is getting into Eric, this. Eric, I need a favor. My daughter's happiness this depends on this. Uh, basically saying, fire this sports journalist as a favor to me, the owner of the White Sox. So nuts. But I, I just, well, I love the physical comedy, how she like falls in the chair, mm-hmm. hairs everywhere. I'm like, I'm not going to send it. Of course I'm not going to send it. I'm not a fucking psychopath. I'm not going to send it. I'm just going to write it, show it to him, break into the building, show it to him, break up the wedding, still the groom, but I'm never going to send it because that is, that is too far. <laughs> and then she sends it. And then it. she sends it. Which leads up to one of my top three favorite scenes because I can't pick a favorite which mm. is the one where she's smoking in the hallway <sighs> with Paul Giamatti I feel like while watching that I just thought this movie is, is so good this is not just like a rom-com like this yeah. is my new favorite movie the way she says I'm a bad date I do, what does she say she says I do bad things to good people I yeah that. yeah oh it's so good and it's like it's really a scene that understands what Paul Giamatti is because it's like (laughs) pre him being famous and he's just like rattles along in his bellhop uniform like man this is non-smoking floor (laughs) and then she just like keeps smoking and she looks really like she is on the verge of psychosis yeah like it it really looks like it's from a different film like a psychological drama Mm -hmm. um like a much grittier movie and uh she does that speech of I do bad things to good why don't you have me arrested? I won't struggle. And I think at that moment, she literally oh. wants that to happen. Yeah, like yeah, she wants yeah. to be like, she wants someone to remove her from the situation. Oh, it's so good. And she's like, she's like, like trembling with her cigarette and the ash is so thick. And she's so like, thick. It's like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. <laughs> and then she's like, they share the cigarette. They share the cigarette. He's like, do you smoke? And she's like, he's like, yeah, I do. He's like, but this is the non-smoking floor. Good and then line. he just takes this long drag and he says, this too shall pass. It's so good. So well done. The writing is so good. And I, I'm confused by 
because the director, right, helped edit the script. So I don't actually mm. know which one of them is the genius. Probably mm. the director, because he's the one who came up with the music and the idea. And what do you think? Like, I just, I just love, I don't know who my favorite writer is because I don't actually know who wrote that. So that's true, actually. Yeah. So uh, did you read a little bit about the writer Ron, what's his name? Ron Bass. I think so, we read the same article. I think we did. But it is bizarre how that man works. And I can't tell whether or not I approve of it. Um, in, means to an end. It was perfect. So to explain <laughs> to the listeners. So PJ Hogan, who we've talked about already, who directed Muriel's Wedding. Um, he teamed up with the writer Ron Bass, who um, has written Stepmom. Which oh, I he th- wrote Stepmom? Yeah. Oh, he loves her. She loves him. Uh, a romantic comedy waiting to be written between those two. I have to cover it on this podcast. It's such a traumatic and terrible and wonderful movie. Oh God, yes. He also did Waiting to Exhale and How Stella Got Her Groove Back. And that one was really good, actually. I loved that movie. I was like obsessed with that movie when I was like nine. I, I don't know. I remember thinking, <laughs> thinking, like seeing the cover and thinking she was just so beautiful that she was like a Barbie, that it was like almost like going to be a Barbie movie. Like, because mm-hmm. it was so playful, the font, and she was so stunning. Um, and so so he is a director who has gotten a lot of um, praise and adulation and fame from directing women's films. And Wait, are you talking about Ron Bass did this? So Ron Bass are writing women's films. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. My mistake. Um, but his methodology is that Ron has a yeah. troop of women, young women, or he certainly did in 1987, who he works with, who are referred to as the Ronettes. So it's like six to eight women in their mid-twenties who like consult with him on everything he does in his scripts and basically are his little, um, you know, what's it called? Testing. His audience testing. Um, and so PJ Hogan walks into the situation where he has the script. He says changes he wants to make. And he's there with Ron Bass and what he refers to as the Ronettes. And he says, after like five minutes, and they're like, okay, well, what will we do? And he's like, I can't, I can't work like this. I can't work with you and many other women at the same time. It has to be sort of two people working on a single vision, which is totally fair enough. But the kind of the line at the end of this paragraph is, which was very offensive to the Ronettes. <laughs> I love that. I love that he was upset. He's like, that's it's very disrespectful to the Ronettes. Um, but I also feel like I get that that is insane. But it would have been nice to be a Ronette in a way. Because I yeah. think they did help him write this film, right? Because it was sort of implied that they did help him write it. And then they, they together, the other two men edited it together. Yes. But they created it together. Yes. So imagine it would be great. I don't know. Well, maybe it'd be terrible to be one of these women because you don't get any credit. Well, so th- I'm kind of almost imagining them like like Ron Bass is King Trident and these women are like Ariel's other sisters. <laughs> Um, but like <laughs> making PJ Hogan Sebastian the Crab, obviously, <laughs> duh. Um, but uh, if I see, I don't because those women are not in the credits. So maybe they all went on. Maybe he was a mentor to all of them. And they went on to have incredible careers in screenwriting. But I, I don't know what what happened to them. I would like to know what happened to the Ronettes. Yes, if you know, Please, write in. If you are a Ronette or your mother is a was a Ronette. Please do write in. <laughs> Can we talk about when you, what do you think about the scene, the scene where they sing, say a little prayer for me in the restaurant? Oh, it's just, it's just so good. Would you have come up with it as a screenwriter though? Because I don't know. I, I don't think I would have. It's, I love it, but where did it come from? Where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah. I remember in reading about it in that essay, it was like, it, the, I think Ron Bass was like, why is there 
a four minute long scene of them just singing a song and uh, PJ Hogan saying it should be 10 <laughs> and it should be 10 minutes it is this uh, yeah it's it's so interesting because it's hard to put your finger on what the precise function of it is I re-watching it just loved watching um, Jules and Michael look at each other during it yeah. and he gets more and more jealous and it just feels like so good like it feels so good for her like he's yeah. he's miserable watching like as this all plays out and they're they're yeah. both the two people who would never sing in this situation and just I think he just smolders a lot and you, you yeah. feel more of like maybe he will love her wait maybe she will get him because he's so insanely jealous yes Yes, there's that. And there's also this thing of like, like the, you know, the rules of musicals in general are like, it is a, um, a, a character bursts into song when the emotional truth of what they're facing is too big for words and it must be music. Like that's kind of the internal logic of it. And so you have all these scenes of singing in this movie that don't really make sense, except for it's kind of what people often do when they're in big family gatherings together. I know my family do it a lot. And uh, this sort of... George is this incredibly effervescent character who is... And I want to get into him more, a bit more in a minute, but he's always got... He's got this sort of, like, moral truth and he's got this, this real moral backbone to the movie and he, like, always can see the wood for the trees and he's there telling Jules the reality of the situation. And, like, he... But he also has a kind of an earnestness and a a fully roundedness to him that means he can burst into song and it can work. And Cameron Diaz's character is the same where she's like, she's really grounded and rooted and she sees things clearly and that allows her to burst into song. And then you have Jules and Michael who are both these quite cynical and both seem very damaged people. And it's like, and it's a bit like that when I spoke about the karaoke scene of like, they're not able to give themselves over to things the way other people around them are able to. And almost like the reason that Michael is marrying Kimmy is because he's tired of being cynical Yes. He's tired of being someone who can't burst into song and he wants to join this effervescent, bubbly, marshmallow life and he doesn't want to live in cynicism anymore. Oh my God, that's perfect. That's exactly what it is. He needs Kimmy because you can't have two cynical people together. It just yes. wouldn't work. They just yeah. destroy each other. He needs like that light. Yeah. Yes, you nailed it. They, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, like all these, I think all these characters are technically Gen Xers, but they, it does feel like Jules and Michael are Gen X characters, whereas Kimmy feels like very Gen Z or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is. She's so much younger. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. yeah. I also liked how, um, just reading the article about like who she wanted to cast as Kimmy. She wanted Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Which I don't, th- I mean, I just don't know if that would have, th- I think I would have liked Drew Barrymore too much. She would have been too likable in a way, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Too childlike. Yeah. It wouldn't have worked. I don't think it would have worked. And I think what Drew Barrymore does on screen is too similar to what Julia Roberts does on screen, in a way. That kind of like, just that sort of, that like real girl next door adorability, but also, you know, a knockout beauty or whatever. I think there's something that's about about Cameron Diaz that's like opposite, you know, to Julia Roberts. I think Sarah Jessica Parker was also in the running. Oh no, she's way too similar to Julia Roberts. Oh no, sorry. Sarah Jessica Parker was going to play... Um, Julia Roberts' character before Julia was attached. Oh, she could have pulled that off. That I think that would have been really... Because it's very Carrie Bradshaw energy. She could definitely do that. And the hair. The hair is the important. Hair, the hair is important. And I like how they made Cameron Diaz's hair like 
flat and short. Like it was like you have to be so different. Yeah. You have to be beautiful but not hot. Like they really yes. played that so well. Like cute and beautiful. Even though Cameron Diaz is obviously an incredibly hot woman, they really yeah. like tamped that down. Totally. And this was just off her doing the mask as well, where she was the most sexual woman like who'd ever existed. Like she was just sex on screen. And then there's something so wholesome and like she looks like the entire sport of tennis in one person. <laughs> yes. The pearls. And all and never wearing her cardigan properly, just always on her shoulders, like this preppy. I feel like this divides people, but I I like Michael and I like him. I like who who plays him. I feel like people are Dermot like, Mulroney? he's such a drip, blah, blah, blah. I feel like he's hot. <laughs> he is for sure hot. And I would have been furious if they'd cast Russell Crowe or Matthew McConaughey. Oh my God. I would absolutely not no. have even watched that film. I just think he is A, very hot. B, he has to be kind of blank because there's so much insanity going on. He mm. can't then have his own like jokes and like bits like what he needs to be like sort of grounded and what did you think about him I think I yeah my previous what's lovely about doing this podcast is like movies that I've seen lots of times I then have to like really look at and think about them on levels I've never had before like what motivates characters and whatever and I think he is believably believably like that that again, that sort of cynicism and that dryness and that sort of archness that he shares with with Jules, like it really works. I think, and you can see that these are two people who met in college. You can see that there are people who like look at other people at the party and be like, "Everyone's been here has been a fucking idiot." <laughs> Thank God we're smart, you know. Yeah, um, I'm glad. I'm glad you feel the same way. Yeah, I, I would. I, I wouldn't say I'm crazy about him. Like there are definitely more interesting romantic leads. Um, and so I think because there's so much plot happening in this movie, you can't, like, it's very hard to fit in friendship scenes. Like, they basically mm. only have one friendship scene. And it's them, like, sitting on the subway, smoking and eating you know, something. Eat, eating hot dogs. Eating hot yeah. dogs, that's yeah. it. Michael doesn't smoke. Come that's on. true. Michael doesn't smoke. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> She's the only one who smokes. And, and Paul Giamatti. And Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I love him. Um, so, yeah, there's not, like, I think... It's a hard sell because we see so little of them together. I went to Brown mm-hmm. University looking yes. for my Michael. Definitely found my George. Oh. My friend Ben. Yeah. I would say we are not best, best, best friends, but we're definitely like top three best friends. Like when he visits, we're together all the time. We've slept in the same beds. Yeah. Like I I definitely love that kind of friendship. But um, I do feel like you have, I mean, you're the, you know more about this than me. Because... Oh, because, because of your book and because you're a real friend. And... Yeah, yeah. The definitely, this is like a relationship I've been thinking about, and um, I this is the beginning of like the real flurry of gay best friends seen on screen. Um, and I, 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 I think it's it's a really fascinating area of study for me. It makes me think that like I want to do a whole episode just on gay best friends in in media, um, because like there is this. There's this real absence of gay life in mainstream movies, unless it's like something incredibly dramatic and sad, like, you know, Philadelphia. And even then, Mm. that was played by Tom Hanks, a a straight actor. And so to have a gay actor playing a gay role on screen um, in 1997 in such a mainstream movie with Julia Roberts um, was like, it was a thing, you know? And it was the fact that he's such the breakout star of that movie. 
any and really the reason most people know Rupert Everett's name I think is because of this movie um and I and it, it began this sort of trend that we see in many rom-coms of of the gay best friend and I think George is a really well-rounded fleshed out character like we see his life like we see him <laughs> we see him at that that brilliant book launch for Harry Shearer who is a writer on The Simpsons which I love um, and a voice actor on The Simpsons and like he is, and yeah whenever she's calling him he's always doing something his more... dinner party like yes it's so good exactly he is the complete there's a lot of like jokes been made over the years about like the best friend whether gay or not in romantic comedies it's often played by Judy Greer and they're always criticised as being these people who just don't have lives outside of the lead and and what I love about that about George's character he's absolutely someone with a huge <laughs> life who is deigning to help out their friend slash client yeah I love it I love that he is the ending that it's like so you think you think that he is the real best friend yeah absolutely yeah. And he I is also, now yeah. yeah and I think he's teaching her an important lesson because like he's you know a gay man who, whenever we see him, he's com- he's totally surrounded by people. He's surrounded by joy. Everyone loves that he's there in a completely unproblematic way. It seems, mm. and he is operating in a way in a in a landscape that is pre gay marriage, that is post AIDS, that is like, and I know it's like un- probably unnecessarily deep, but somebody who has learned to find community where he lands, you know, and learn like learns to find intimacy wherever he goes, and learns to you know, find love in friendships and love in, you know, community and love in society rather than this incredibly heteronormative vision of like, you find love with one person, you stick with them and that's your intimate life. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, there's there's dancing. It's everywhere, you know? And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is. And that he flew for her. He flew <laughs> twice! <laughs> you hate flying. Yeah. I love, I'll also, I mean, we should talk about the the chase scene where well mm. actually let's so when she so every, as we we were at the point where like everything blows up right mm. and then she realizes oh my god it's blown up and they're still gonna get married <laughs> so i have one last card to play which i'm gonna stand in a gazebo and i'm gonna say pick me choose me marry oh. me i'll make you happy which i think is so beautiful despite like what it is it's so vulnerable yeah i love it yeah and my 12-year-old definitely thought, he'll pick her. Of course he will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like, that that terrible thing of, like, you've learned to communicate too late and not enough, you know? Yeah, you usually get rewarded for that. Like, as soon yeah. as you say the thing, you get the thing. And you you don't you don't get the thing in this movie. You don't but get the um, thing. And the chase scene and, like, <laughs> she's from New York. <laughs> I love it. But, yeah, back to the George thing is, like, when she calls him in the stolen bread van or whatever. Yeah. And, like, so much... Like, call me, like, flipping the flower guys over. Like, doesn't anyone trust anyone anymore? Like, stealing a car. Like, it's just so good. But that, that George, what does he yell at her, like, on the phone? He's like, did he kiss back? And she's like, mm. <laughs> we were lip to lip. <laughs> and he's just basically like, if he didn't kiss back, he's chosen her. It's over. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. No, he goes, he says, so Michael's chasing Kimmy. Yes. You're chasing Michael. Yes. Who's chasing you? <laughs> Nobody. Get it? It's Kimmy. <laughs> Oh, so good. It's so good because he's like, he's. it's the tough love thing, right? Yeah. It's like, you have to hear this. Like, you're never going to give up. And that I think that is the moment she gives up because right when she sees Michael at the train station, mm. she confesses all. Like, that is, is do you, th- do you yeah. agree? Like, yeah. 
Yeah, it is when she gives up totally, and like I think that's there's um the the the, the sort of souring of the best friend cliche in movies has always been like just the sort of like starry-eyed character who's always propping up the main character and and telling telling the audience how to feel because the people who are making the movie aren't sure you know it's like wow wow diana you've never had a boyfriend in all the time i've known you isn't it time you should and it's like this really clunky that's when the best friend trope is at its worst but when the best friend trope is at its best is when the best friend is saying things that the audience is already thinking and is is possibly worried that the movie doesn't know that they're thinking it you know Mm -hmm. and it's like it's him just being like get a fucking grip and like that's what a great best friend does in a movie and he nails it. He nails it. <laughs> Are any stray lines that you just want to talk about because they're nice? I mean, I think that is what really stands out is just how yeah. many good lines. I mean, at the top you said, you're never going to beat Jello. Like, I just thought, like, that's my entire tone of my writing. Like, this, <laughs> what? what's wrong with Jello? He's comfortable with Jello. Like, I just, I love that bit. It's just so interesting. And I, and, um, and I'll, I'll never forget, like, the pawn scum bit. Oh, yeah. I, well, I'm lower than, what is it again? He's like, no, you're lower. You're like, the pus that infects the mucus that becomes the pawn scum, whatever. And that's when I think, See, Michael's interesting. See, he yeah. has something to him. That's, that's funny. True. That that's is funny. And that's and he doesn't he doesn't I mean, he doesn't really say like he doesn't really confront her in a way. He just he forgives her. He moves on. Yeah. He's just like, "Well, okay. Let's go find Kimmy." And I don't think it's because he's blank, which is how a lot of people see it. It's because it's just like you've been best friends for 10 years. Like you're you'll, you'll move on. Like and she she has come around to the right thing. Yeah. Well, that's how I saw it. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> do you not see it that way? No, I do see it that way. I just, I just think it's nice. I just, yeah, I just think that, and then, I just love this film so much. Just because when she's, when she and Kimmy are like doing their confrontation in the White Sox bathroom, the women's bathroom, mm. with all the women around, and there's that like woman going, Kimmy, Kimmy. <laughs> like adding that in is just such joy. Yeah, they're right. There's so many little details that I just and I, I just so I, yummy. You know, when you're as a writer and you watch you watch something and you're just like, you guys really cared. Like you, you really, really cared. cared. You did not have to put that in, and you did because you know that in a baseball game in a women's bathroom there are going to be a few people around who are just like drunk or whatever. Like, um, yeah. Gimme, <laughs> gimme, 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 gimme. You, yeah. Anyway, I just think it's it's so good. What, um, is, what does she call her again? You, like you, big-haired food critic. Big-haired food critic. As if that's the most shameful thing you could possibly be. Yeah. What is to Kimmy's world? Like, yeah. They eat the fancy food. They don't critique it they don't for money. Critique it. Absolutely not. I'm desperate to know what what Jules's book she was touring was. Oh yeah, me too. To not get that information is very annoying to me. They don't tell you anything about her. No. Like, I don't even know. Like I'm I, to me, I think she's very East Coast for sure. Right. Yes. Um. But definitely not boarding school. I just don't know. I want to know more about her. Yeah, because it seems like, and maybe I like that this isn't in it, but it seems like any any character who's that sort of detached and invulnerable and uh, should have some kind of story as to why they are that way. But she just is. 
That's just her vibe. Which I really like because I'm, I'm working on like writing a TV show as well. I do feel like that's a note I get a lot of like, but why is she this way? Like, and I don't want to go back and explain it because I don't feel like you have to go back and explain every little thing just because eventually Fleabag did. Yes. Like, yeah, I... I don't want to do that. I feels it feels like you said, like it feels clunky. I don't want to over explain. And so I, I actually like that she comes into this and we don't know exactly why, but we understand and we believe it. Completely. I, I, there's something to I've realized that there's nothing more boring to me in art than childhood trauma. Like there's nothing I hate more than a character who's like a little bit like maladjusted because their dad died. You know what I mean? When they were seven or like the, something like equally traumatic. And it's like, most, like I know people who are weird and I know people who've had uh, terrible things happen to them in their lives and I know people who are weird who terrible things have less, like happened to them in their lives like it's like it's just so there's not in real life there is not an A to B correlation between X happened to you when you're seven so you're this way when you're 37 like people are products of their environment and their siblings and the culture and the society they're in like, and it's the like, movie they saw when they were 12 and the movie they saw when they were 12 like those things are so much more impactful than like my dog uh, died. And, yeah, yeah. And, and an isolated incident of trauma that can easily be like pointed to in a movie. And honestly, I think movies rely on this so much that people in real life think that they're more influenced by single traumatic events than they are. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I do think that. And I also hate that part of movies where, like, what if they'd like gone back and shown her, like, I don't know, someone breaking her heart or something? That would have been so boring to watch and weird. Yeah. And it's just, I just think that they really pulled off like not doing that. And like you said, like. There isn't a scene in here in this home film that's like boring or like I don't want to watch it. It all mm. has the fun. Like there's so yeah. much fun in it. Even the mo- bits of the movie that are slow, like them on the boat, like that's the heart. Isn't that's it? the heart. Yeah, it feels really emotional. Like it feels like a real romantic. Like it feels like before sunset or something. You know, like um, yeah, it's yeah, five great scenes and no bad ones. <laughs> Jess Pan, you have a wonderful book out called I'm Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, which is about um, sort of introverts learning how to be more extroverted. Is that correct? That is correct. And yeah. it is out now at all good bookshops. Um, and I mean, I'm working on the book, trying to get some TV shows off the ground. But I I did sadly just launch a Substack newsletter. If you want to That's not sad. There. That's great. What is it called? It's called It'll Be Fun, They Said. <laughs> And I just launched it. And I would love for you all to come and find me. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com